When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to another episode of the Boyce of Reason podcast. Today's guest is brought to you by the fine folks at ThinkSpot, who hooked me up with the illustrious Dr. Stephen Hicks. Dr. Stephen Hicks is a professor at Rockford University in Illinois. He's also a lecturer, a content creator, and an author who's been speaking about postmodernism for 20 years now. In this discussion, we use my documentary work on the Evergreen State College as a springboard to explore how postmodernism is supposed to be applied in the world and in interhuman interaction and within institutions of higher learning and so on and so forth. What else can I say except for that you guys are in for a real treat with this one? Here's Dr. Stephen Hicks. It's a total honor to get to speak with you. I've been aware of your work for a number of years now. One of the things that I most appreciate by, about your work is how accessible it is, and you actually make this uh, intellectual milieu really actually fun to engage with by breaking it down into units that are easy to, to grasp, and then with that comes the ability to, to navigate through this landscape. Great. Well, good. I appreciate the feedback. I uh, spent some time looking at the documentary you've been working on, and that's also some very good work. Uh, sad, frightening, uh, at the same time, uh, the application of theory. <laughs> it's one thing to, to read these guys in the abstract and then project what it would be like in reality, and then you actually see the experiment being run. Do you think that, that, that what happened at Evergreen is a, pretty much a direct application of postmodern theory? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, there's no, uh, no unclarity about that. All of the elements are, are there. You're not interested in engaging with other people as uh, rational beings, so you've given up on, entirely on the idea that there's argument and evidence and so forth. Uh, you don't see people as individuals. You see them as avatars or representatives of a group. You have a totally collectivized understanding of uh, what it is to be a human being. Uh, you see those different collective groups as in adversarial relationships with each other. Uh, and the only way then those adversarial relationships can be resolved, uh, if you're not going to do it rationally and civilly, uh, treating individuals as individuals is going to be through group power struggles and uh, a battle for dominance. And that's very clearly what one sees at, at Evergreen. You know, the young student activists have been you know, paying very careful attention in their classes, learning from their professors. They're good students in that regard. Uh, and now they are, uh, you know, universities are a training ground for young scientists and artists and humanists of various sorts. And so here we see uh, the training ground for activists of a certain sort, and they're flexing their muscles and uh, seeing how much they can get away with. Is there any other way that postmodern theory can be acted out in the real world? 
was Evergreen, did they misinterpret what they were handed? Well, yeah, I think there are a number of substrands of postmodern theory. I mean, you know, at a high level of abstraction, one is skeptical, one is relativized, one uh, tends to collectivize human beings uh, rather than seeing them as individuals. You uh, or one has a, a rather than a, a harmonious rights respecting expectation of civil society sorting its issues out peacefully. You do uh, you have this idea that somehow things are a cynical, jaded battleground. Now, at a high level of abstraction, those don't necessarily predict a particular political outcome. So one can be cynical and jaded and skeptical about all sorts of things, and one's attitude can be to, uh, to give up. And to say, well, it's all pointless. There's no genuine value or truth to be sought in the world. And it's an ugly, ugly place. So I'm just going to withdraw and uh, engage in quietism and defeatism. I think a lot of people who are schooled in postmodernism, they, they go in that direction. Another possibility, of course, is to say, you know, if, if there are no truths, uh, no values that are better than others, uh, and no cultures or civilizations that are better than others, then the implication of that should be uh, a kind of radical equalitarianism, uh, where you then just say everybody's narratives are equally legitimate, all groups are equal. And so that can foster a kind of tolerationism, where we just have a live and let live, you do your thing, I'm going to do my thing as well. And that also can come out of strong postmodernism. Uh, but this one is, is uh, uh, another strain where you say, if there are no true values, uh, we just have uh, collectivized understandings of the way the world works. But at the same time, I feel some you know, desire to assert my values in the world. I'm not going to be a quietist. I'm not going to just be a live and let live person. I want to see my my agenda realized. Then one will become a kind of a power activist and so on. So I think there are multiple strands of postmodernism. Mm-hmm. One thing that I was wondering your thoughts about, given your your th- your theoretical work on on the uh, the procession of postmodernism through various different. Enlightenment and counter-enlightenment discussions. When it gets to the era that we're in now, where we have a lot of people being trained in these various gender studies, uh, racial studies, all these different studies groups that seem to be founded on conflict theory or on reversing a hierarchy or understanding everything as a relationship of power. So all these people are being trained in this thought process and then they're going out in the workforce and it seems like the only viable work that they can do is to insert themselves into HR departments or into activist uh, enclaves within bigger corporate or educational structures. So I guess the question is, is, is postmodernism adaptive to bureaucracy? Is that one of its applications? <laughs> well, yes. Uh, you know, we're going to have lots of people who... Maybe in their heart of hearts, they want to be activists and out on the street and uh, and so forth and wearing the black uniform, black on black. Uh, but at the same time, they are pragmatic enough to uh, realize they want to make a living right, of some sort. 
And so if they have a university degree, there's a natural pipeline for them to go into work. And then they will cast around, as you say, and see where their skill set best fits. And certainly HR departments is uh, is one department because there you are in a, in a position to choose who comes in and who doesn't to shape the hiring and promotion policies. And uh, you know, that's a position of some power, but it doesn't necessarily uh, require you to have uh, management skills or marketing skills or leadership skills. Uh, so, yeah, that's a, that's a possible route as well. Another uh, way is uh, you know, if you are more of a subversive, you, you like the idea of being a revolutionary who doesn't fight you know, street fights uh, in a physicalistic form, but you like the idea of working within and subverting institutions that you think are corrupt then often from the SJW perspective, you know, corporations are the big bad bet noir, kind of the, the, uh, the great Satan of American life. So uh, there's a charge to, in effect, being a double agent, right? So you go in and your goal is to uh, subvert the institutions from the inside. So that's another possibility. Is, is there any other way that this, once you adopt this ideology, what kind of value can you create in society? Or is it only, from your perspective, is it only about changing other people's values or uh, controlling other how other people behave? Can you create any positive value in the world? Yeah, yeah. Well, and at a high level of abstraction, um, I think postmodernism is ultimately negative. It's you know, critique all the way down. It's a critique of knowledge, critique of... Uh, any sort of metaphysics or, or scientific understanding of reality, a critique of the notion of, you know, that technology is improving the world or that uh, markets and, and democracy are, are viable, positive projects. Uh, but I don't think uh, uh, any postmodernist is uh, ever in his or her individual life going to be completely nihilistic. Typically, people, particularly Americans, so the one, the North Americans, and so forth, uh, you know, they, they start off as uh, typically you know decent young people, and they have imbibe you know, normal North American values. And so, uh, by the time they go to university, they you know, they genuinely are, for the most part, decent people, and they're concerned about all of the things that decent people are concerned with, you know, pollution and the legacy of racism and sexism and, and why we can't get along. But then uh, you know, all of those uh, issues can uh, be dealt with healthily. But if you get a poisoned intellectual framework to understand those, then your your positive values get turned against you. But they don't necessarily uh, all go away. So you might start off as a, an ordinary, decent person who thinks racism is still a problem to some extent, but you don't have any conceptual tools other than the social justice warrior or the postmodern way of dealing with them. And so then you come to have a very jaded view of it. So what you will then have is, you know, a person who is, is conflicted at some level, they really are anti-racist, but they end up uh, using very jaded and proto-racist or reverse racist tactics in, in trying to solve the problem. So, uh, so I think, in some cases, it's a fig leaf. I think in some cases, you know, like some of the students we see in your documentary at at uh, at Evergreen, uh, you know, they are just naked racists and power play 
people interested in dominating and trying to humiliate and, and control, control the institution. And I think for them uh, at their level of development, the anti-racism racism is, a, is a fig leaf. It's a, it's a cover. They can say, you know, I'm, I'm against racism. And they know that that's going to mean people will give them the benefit of the doubt, cut them some slack, give them a moral sanction because uh, everybody is basically anti-racist at this point. But then you can use that benevolence and that tolerance against your, your target. And I think that's a calculated strategy. But I think uh, if you were to talk with the average, say, freshman student at Evergreen or some such uh, other place, that person probably is is more mixed. They have some genuine anti-racism, anti-sexism. They're still decent human beings, but they are in the process of being transformed. You know, their their intellectual understanding is in conflict with their, at that point, acquired legitimate anti-racism. And how do you think, uh, in studying this, you, you've been looking at this, or you've been speaking about this for 20 years now, I think, right? Was the Your first talk that I stumbled on was 1998. What are the steps that start to erode those, as you call them, the positive North American values into that jaded? What, what are some of the, like, the psychological uh, phase states of that? Oh, yes, right. Well, I think uh, kind of first-generation postmodernism, as I think of it, is you know, if you're thinking of individuals you know, such as uh, you know, Foucault and Derrida and Rorty and the others, they're all extraordinarily well-educated people because at that point they are in a they are genuine intellectual minorities. They're well-schooled in the majority traditions, so they know the arguments inside and out, and they uh, they recognize the weaknesses in those traditions, and they're very good at teasing out the implications of those as well. So you start off with then people who know both sides of the debate very well, and they end up being on on the other side of the debate. But then uh, as those first generation postmoderns are training the next generation of students, particularly graduate students who are going to become professors, if your official conclusions are there is no truth, reason is not competent for coming to know reality, uh, different groups have their own value struggles and there's no logical or rhetorical way to bridge the gulf, then what that is going to mean in the second generation is those graduate students who are going to become professors are going to say things like, well, it's not really uh, worth my time to try to understand the other side's arguments. I'm not going to be able to do that. And I'm not going to expect them to try to understand my arguments. So at that point, then you say, we're not going to do the argument thing anymore. Uh, we're also not going to say that we should treat each other civilly. Uh, that is to say that we should respect each other's differences of opinions right, about debate because you know, civility uh, means that we have a shared underlying concept of how we should conduct ourselves in society. But what I've learned from the first generation is that there is no such thing. There are no universal values. And so I've just got my values. You just have your values. So that then means discussion is going to break down. I think for a while, what's going to happen then is they will say what we should then just do is kind of study 
uh, or make equal time for all of the different perspectives in the in the in the curriculum. So, uh, you know, we'll have one group and we'll do our thing. Maybe we are feminists of a certain fight, or we're we're we're, we're African American theorists of a certain sort, and each group will do its own thing, and they will just be arguing for a roughly equal place in the curriculum. Uh, but each aspect of the people in the curriculum, they're just doing their own thing and they're not trying to communicate with each other. Then I think the third thing, this is the third stage, this is where we are now, is once you know, each of those enclaves right, within the academic world has its own power base and it's then trained another generation of students, then it becomes a power struggle within the university. You want to have hegemony. You want to grow your department, your program, but typically that means squeezing out the other programs. And so you'll have uh, kind of the nasty zero-sum power play politicking that's that's going on. So, uh, you, know, the, the, uh, you know, so what you see at Evergreen in uh, 2017 then really is that, that third generation. It's not in the first generation where you, uh, you know, I'm mythically reconstructing here, you would have had early evergreen professors saying, you know, there is a, a strong tradition or set of traditions that believe in truth and goodness and reality and liberty and equality. And they have these arguments against each other. And we think that's all ultimately crap, but we understand that tradition and here are our, our, our arguments against that. And then you have a second generation of evergreen professors who will say, let's stop talking uh, to each other. Let's just make sure that all of these different groups have their own niches on campus and their own programs, right, and so forth. And then the third generation is going to be, you know, some of those programs will start to assert themselves and try to squeeze out the others. Well, what's the fourth generation? Is it the dissolution of the academy as the academy? Is it like it turns into a variety of different academies? Can these things get along at this stage going forward? No, no, there's not going to be a getting along, right? So, you know, smaller, more vulnerable institutions like uh, like Evergreen, um, you know, there, there will be market feedback at some level. You know, so uh, it'll be harder for them to attract students, harder for them to attract donors, harder for them to attract uh, first-rate faculty who want to come and teach there. And so, it, you know, institutions that go too far down that road will just go into a self-destroying death spiral and will go go out of existence, you know, unless they have some huge endowment that they can coast on for, for a long time. And then the action will just gravitate to, uh, to some other, some other place. Um, <clears throat> but no, I, I think the, the next step is going to be that other groups will then start to backlash and use the same tactics against the, uh, the current generation of social justice warriors. So, uh, you know, if you then start to see, so certain sorts of feminism, for example, start to manifest themselves in very ugly uh, adversarial power play forms. Then there's going to be a subsection of males who will then say, OK, well, <laughs> we'll just do the exact same thing back. And so it'll just be outright warfare. Or if uh, you know, certain uh, you know, members of racial groups, you know, they want to up the things and turn it into racial war, then kind of the nice, tolerant uh, members on the other side and the other racial groups will say enough is enough and they'll just organize themselves racially and we'll be back to old-fashioned race wars again. So you'll end up with a, uh, a balkanization, if I can use that metaphor, right, or just tribalism is a little more generalized uh, and it'll just be, it'll just, be uh, uh, just fought out. At that point, you can't predict. 
know, if it's a race war, well, which race is going to win? If it's a, a sex and gender war, right, or if it's an ethnic war, well, I don't know, we've been having ethnic wars <laughs> for, for, uh, for generations, and we know how that history goes. It's not predictable. Well, what do you think about an educational institution such as Yale, where they had a, a dust-up and uh, with Christakis in, I think it was 2015 or 2016, and then, yeah, and they seem to be big enough to, I guess, incorporate that way of thinking or ameliorate that crowd and still carry on, but it seems like the problem I have with social justice is that it, it likes to capture everything. It'll capture all the medical schools. It'll capture all the sciences and in, insert its ideology or cause the people who are trying to learn how to be a doctor to spend a lot of time on this other secondary material that they believe is primary. Is there any way to stop it or slow it down or counter it? Yeah, no, I think that's that's perceptive in, in two ways, the points you're making. One is you know, for all of, uh, kind of postmodernism's rhetoric about being anti-universalistic and anti-dominance and anti-imperialistic, colonial yeah. in practice, they are right, extraordinarily uh, imperialistic and universalistic. Yeah, it's it's a total power agenda that they're that they are going for. And you're right, Yale is different uh, than, a, than a case like uh, um, Evergreen. It, Yale has huge institutional resources and reserves. So it could, in principle, um, you know, there's, as Adam Smith said about economies, there's a there's a great deal of ruination possible in a in a country. Uh, it does have d- deep reserves, so it can tolerate a certain number of self-destructive experiments and so on. And to some extent, we do expect universities to be hot houses and laboratories for all kinds of wacky experiments. Right? And so a place like Yale. You know, might even want to encourage it. But then the question is going to be, what will Yale and the rest of us who are watching Yale going to learn right from the lesson? And I think one of the things that will happen at an institution like Yale is that this will be, I don't know, not a, not a, a tempest in a teacup. Uh, I don't know how much to belittle it. But uh, Yale has a, an extraordinary number of first-rate intellectuals who are doing really good work in all sorts of disciplines. And one of the reasons why uh, the, the crazies and the activists and the people who are not really there for education, knowledge, truth, goodness, and so forth uh, can get some traction at Yale is uh, that the first rate people are focusing on their work. They're trying to get stuff actually done. They're not taking the, the postmoderns and the social justice warriors that seriously. But then to the extent that the social warriors, uh, uh, I really don't like calling them social justice warriors because they're, they're really yeah, anti-social they're and, <laughs> and they're anti-justice. They are warriors <laughs> in a way. Yeah, so, they are warriors. Uh, we that. Yes. We actually are the justice warriors. We, got, we have to recapture that label. <laughs> there, but the, uh, because <laughs> we actually care about truth and facts and, and, and treating individual cases. But the point is, at a certain point, the first-rate people at Yale and the other institutions say, all right, this is enough of a problem. This is crap. This is interfering with my ability to do my work, my ability to uh, train students and so forth. And so they will redirect some of their efforts. And as soon as you have the first-rate minds taking on what really are third-rate activist minds, uh, it's kind of clear to me who will win at Yale. Uh, Yale wants to be a world-class institution. 
I can't see the current generation of professors, the, the administration, even the students who are there who genuinely want to do something with their lives, the donors and so forth, uh, putting up with it for too long. Now, maybe that's too optimistic, but that's my sense. Do you think that the pursuit or the uh, possession of, of excellence, whether of ability or of character, is one aspect that causes somebody to be immune to the siren call of uh, what we're calling social justice? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, kind of one of the interesting questions in philosophy is whether uh, one thinks about the issues rationally and considers arguments and evidence and counter-arguments and then makes up one's mind, and then depending on where one's reason leads, one's psychology, your emotions, and your habits of thought and speech and action follow right from that. Or whether it's the other way around, that we start off with a, a psychology that is somewhat uh, perhaps implicit, and then we're attracted to philosophical positions about values and knowledge and truth that support our psychology. So psychology uh, is the driver and philosophy ends up being kind of a, an autobiography of, of one's psychology. And that's an ongoing back and forth debate in, uh, in the history of, of philosophy. Now, my view is that uh, uh, both paths are possible. I mean, I think in many cases, it's clear that uh, people come in with a psychology and that lends them to, uh, to, uh, to pay attention only to things that push the buttons that they, uh, they already like to have pushed. And things that take them outside of their comfort zone, they have uh, blocks in places and they keep their blocks up so they don't have to consider those things. So I think there are a lot of people who do come in who are already disturbed psychologically. Maybe they have a, a grievance against, uh, against society, against reality. They, uh, they already uh, don't have much self-esteem and they don't, they kind of have a sneaking suspicion that they're not going to make much of their own lives, but they still need to assert themselves in some way. So there's some dark psychological territory coming along. And that person, I think, is a prime candidate for certain kinds of ideology. Postmodernism is not the only one, but there is that, that road, and that's a natural recruiting route. But I do think it can go the other way, that you can start with people who are basically decent, who are open to the evidence, open to argument. Uh, who have a more benevolent understanding of themselves and humans, but they take seriously the arguments and they buy into skeptical, jaded, cynical understandings of the world. They really think that those are, are, are true. And uh, over time, that shapes their thinking, that shapes their emotion, and then they can become poisoned individuals. So it can go both ways. Were you at some point in your own development and maybe college or undergrad, were you, uh, did you play around with that skeptical, jaded sense or was it always distasteful for you or how did you decide on which path you wanted to go? Right. No, I remember, um, you know, I, I think in some ways I was, uh, was, you're asking me to reconstruct the teenage Stephen Hicks, where was I on all of these issues? I think I was mixed, but basically, uh, you know, intelligent, open-minded, positive values are possible person. At the same time, I wasn't, you know, an idiot and a Pollyannist. I was, you know, well aware of all of the hypocrisies and power plays and 
you know, I went through high school just like everybody else. So I, you, know, you, you get a good education in the social types that are possible. And uh, even though I didn't typically read what my teachers assigned in high school, I was always reading uh, history and literature and, uh, and politics and so on. So I was, you know, was aware of the dark side and, and the brutality and, uh, and, and all of the possibilities for a cynical and jaded right, view of life. And I think that was where I was when I started university. And I got a very good liberal arts education at the University of Guelph, uh, you know, partly because they had uh, genuine diversity of thought in a lot of the departments I studied in political science, in history, and especially in philosophy. Uh, one anecdote I like to tell was uh, that my philosophy department at University of Guelph uh, expanded dramatically in the 1960s and 70s during the baby boomer generation. And the chairman of the department at that time was a guy named John Bruce, who was a skeptic. And uh, he basically was given a charge by the president of the university to go out and hire something like 12 or 14 philosophers to build up the department. But because he was a skeptic, uh, his attitude was, you know, I said, well, um, I don't really have a, an axe to grind here. And so he went to the Canadian Philosophical Association and the American Philosophical Association meetings with a shopping list. And he said, OK, I need a I need a Nietzschean. I need a Papirian, I need a Marxist, I need a Kantian, I need a Thomist. And so he basically hired uh, people from all over the intellectual spectrum. So this is coming back to answering your question. So that meant that by the time I got there, uh, basically there were 20 philosophy professors and they all disagreed with each other fundamentally because they were all coming from dramatically different parts of the spectrum. And I took courses with all of them. And what that then meant was, you know, that uh, those professors who were very strong skeptics, very strong relativists, very strong adversarialists, Marxists, and so on, uh, and proto-postmodernists at, at this point, uh, you know, I engaged with them at a, at a first-rate level. And it did have an effect on me. So I remember having, you know, weeks where I would be following a line of argument, and it seemed like it was leading to a very dark place. And if I was going to be intellectually honest, I had to go there. And in some cases, it was leading to uh, very jaded places. And this means that I was going to have to look at you know, perhaps my, my current friends quite differently, my parents and, and so forth. Uh, so... Uh, so there was a, there was an engagement there, and uh, you know, but the way I remember deciding when I became a philosophy major was to say, look, uh, you know, facts are facts, and the only way to sort this out is going to be by following the best arguments and and weighing them, and I will just go wherever those go. So that's the path I that's the path I pursued, even if it landed you in hell, you're, you're fine. fine. Yes, that. yeah, that's right. That's right. So in that sense, there was a, a, a methodological primacy. We have to follow the facts. We have to be true to reality, however ugly reality turns out to be, if that turns out to be the true picture. That I have to deal with human beings as they are, even if my best understanding of human beings ends up being negative. So that willingness to go there uh, was there. Now, I ended up not coming to think that those are the 
true or best understandings of reality, knowledge, and the human condition. But uh, I think if you're going to really be a philosopher or any sort of intellectual genuinely, you do have to be open to that. Uh, what landed you with a smile then, rather than a frown at the end? Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I think it would just be a matter of you know reading the people who are advocates of science, you know, uh, realism and perception that concept formation is a legitimate process that logic actually works putting those arguments up against the, uh, the best skeptical arguments and uh, the, uh, the positive accounts right, prevailed. So, and it'll be the same thing on issues of human nature, value, politics, and so on. There's two directions I want to go, but I, I'm wondering if, with the, armed with the tools of logic and science, that gives you some measure of power in the world or some measure of legitimacy in actually being able to construct rather than the opposite, which would be only being able to criticize indefinitely. Yeah, that, no, I would say as human beings, less. that is, yeah, that is the most important power that we have, is the power of our minds to figure out the way the world works and to use that to guide our, our actions. We're, we are, compared to other animal species, wimps physically. Uh, we have a big brain and learning how to use that very well, that's... That's where it's at for humans. So the postmoderns, you know, if we take them as an instructive example at the other end, uh, yeah, it, it does become bestiality. You know, if you sabotage, which is what postmodernism, you sabotage your, your most powerful tool. It's ultimately, you know, to give an analogy, you know, to uh, you know, a young bird that learns to pluck out its own feathers. You know, it's mm. uh, it's mm. self-destruction. You you described a moment in your intellectual life that I think might map onto a moment in the intellectual life of uh, our culture where there was an ability for a variety of viewpoints to hold be held in tension. And it seems like over time, within certain pockets of academia, uh, certain groups have won out. I, I wonder what was the what allowed all those different viewpoints to be held in tension. What was the the floor upon which all those different thinkers could could meet or rest? Yeah, well, I think the uh, the, the floor has kind of two. I don't know how far would you extend this metaphor? Two pillars or two sub basements <laughs> that's a, that support the floor. So, you know, if the floor is say the the ideal of a liberal arts college or a liberal arts university, where we're going to bring in genuine diversity of thought, and we're going to meet and consider each other's viewpoints and let the best arguments and interpretations prevail. And that we're going to be self-correcting and any conclusions that we reach, we're going to uh, be open to reevaluating. Now, if that's the floor, then the, uh, the, the pillars are going to be one, that there, there are such things as facts, uh, that reality matters and, and that, that we are striving to come to understand reality. And the other is that we are capable of doing so if we go through a certain process and we can go through that process individually of being open to all of the uh, the data uh, and initially having an open mind uh, orientation 
to doing our best to try various ways of categorizing that data, to running experiments, to analyzing the results, to putting our interpretation of the results out there and letting other smart people critique them and then taking seriously their critiques and responding to those. And then to formalize that in a social setting, which is what a university is supposed to be, where we're going to train young students how to do that, whether it's a literature class and we're interpreting Beowulf or if it's a biology class or, or a politics class. So the platform then is uh, we're trying to get to reality. There is a reality out there. And if we follow this methodology individually and socially, we, we can do it. And what happened then is uh, the skeptics in the subsectors of the academy that you're talking about, they won out. They became anti-realist. You know, they came to believe that, well, hey, you know, religious people and scientific people and everyone in the middle, we've been arguing for thousands of years and nobody can convince anybody else. So let's not talk about reality anymore. People are just going to believe what they're going to believe anyway. And then on top of that, they have uh, a couple of centuries of very skeptical arguments that have been directed against all of the elements that I just went through, that we can be open to facts, that we can interpret things, that we can uh, run experiments and the experiments can give us decisive results one way or the other. All of that got hollowed out. So both the uh, the fact orientation and the, the pro-empiricism and reason orientation got hollowed out and is there a yeah? Is there a, is there a moment where they realize that they are undermining the ability of a utopia whatsoever? Because if if they don't have a floor to replace the floor that they're eroding, like I just don't see why you would do that if if you don't have another floor. It seems like they have like another better world uh, constructed of equity or fairness, but it seems like it's missing yeah. that that feedback loop. Right. Well, that's that's an interesting question about postmoderns. And I think, again, there are subgroups within postmoderns. I mean, some will say, no, I'm taking the negative conclusion seriously. And what that means is that all values ultimately are failures. And I don't have anything to, to, to replace it with. Now, I might have my personal commitments that I've inherited or that I've lived with. But when I apply my own postmodern critical tools to my own values, I have to realize that my values don't escape that either. So all I'm left with is subjective preferences. And I can't, I can publicly assert those, but I can't publicly argue that they are in fact better than anyone else's. Um, and so I think uh, Derrida, for example, in the 60s and uh, 70s was in, in this position. Uh, and I think uh, Foucault to a large extent was in that position off and on. Uh, and I think someone like Rorty and um, uh, um, uh, Derrida later and, and in his life, they uh, are still kind of holding out hope for some way of having their value framework escape the corrosive effects of, of a thoroughgoing skepticism. So there's a late interview, for example, with Jacques Derrida before he died. I don't know the exact year. But uh, he's being asked uh, about you know, what he actually believes positively. In effect, it's a variation on the question that you just asked. And uh, you know, basically what he says is, where, you know, forthrightly, you know, postmodernism and deconstruction 
it uh, it leads to the creation of monsters. Right? It's just everything ends up being empty and and ugliness. Everything is uh, is ultimately shit, and there is no positive value. But at the same time, and then he goes in a somewhat platonic, Kantian way, but wistfully, where he wants to say that I would still like to believe in some sense that uh, this equalitarian world vision uh, can serve as a, as a regulative standard, that in some sense it can escape the deconstruction. Uh, but he does it wistfully, and, and, and some, at the end of his life, you know, Derrida was... Uh, interviewed uh, about exactly this issue and whether there was any positiveness that can come out. And he basically said, said no, but at the same time, he said wistfully that he kind of hoped that some sort of egalitarian idealism, because he was a quasi-Marxist all of his career, far left, right, and so forth, might serve in some kind of platonic or Kantian regulative idea way as a, and it's almost like as, as another worldly idea that I can't account for where it comes from. And I really hope that it's true, but I just don't have the intellectual resources to, uh, to support a belief in, in something like that. So he ends up in a more conflicted place. Rorty, I think, is, uh, is, a, is a milder case, uh, you know, very well read in the history of analytic philosophy and, and on, on the continentals. And he ends up going very far down the postmodern road in terms of his understanding of the, the human condition and his anti-realism and his skepticism uh, about the powers of uh, empiricism and, and, uh, and rationalism. But at the same time, he never uh, you know, gave up his kind of far left social democrat convictions that in his heart of hearts, this is a true and positive vision. What uh, he seems to settle on is that the way we formulate our values is not a rational process, but he still wants to hold that there is such a thing as a, as a, a right set of values that can and should be urged. And so he wants to recast his rhetorical project. He's not going to use it in terms of truth argument and convince people rationally, but rather we are more emotionalist and socially conditioned beings and that he can just find a good way to use the rhetorical tools available to him, he can recondition a certain number of people to have the felt sympathy toward the values that he think are thinks are the, the right kind of kind of values. So he wants to return to pre-modern uh, religious, some sort of reformulated religion then with uh, faith-based. Uh, I wouldn't say that Rorty is at all religious or or faith based in a in a in a traditional sense. I would say he is emotion based, right? And so that we, uh, you know, it's not that we get these values from God or another dimension or a source. Uh, I think you know Derrida is to some extent holding out hope that maybe we're tapping into some sort of regulatory regulative idea source, right? Or there's that quip from Heidegger uh, when he's being under, uh, uh, um, interviewed toward the end of his life. And he says, basically, everything has gone to crap and all of his youthful ideals have been shown to uh, have been betrayed and so forth. And he says, only a God can save us. And that, that is to say, it's not necessarily that he's believing in a God, but that uh, he kind of is hoping that in some sense there's a God-like creature that can maybe come down and sort out the mess that we've made for ourselves. Now, I don't think Rorty is in that category at all. I think he's a secular thinker 
but I think he thinks that we are primarily uh, conditioned through kind of a linguistic, uh, a linguistic methodology that works more on our emotions and our passions. And then what we call reasoning is an after the fact rationalization. So what we need to do is refashion our activism and our use of language in a more uh, conditioning uh, way of doing things, right? Rather than a, a logical scientific way of doing things. And then you know, he's mm-hmm. basically a, a nice guy. So he, uh, in, in kind of the, the left liberal tolerationist camp, and so he is on the other side of the those who come out of the Marxist revolutionary camp, where you know really we're fine with taking it to the street and uh, punching people and and uh, killing the class enemies ultimately to refashion society. So he's more of a democratic socialist in that sense. I just I still don't see how they aren't just trying to return to a religion or a religious way of looking at the world. I mean, is there like uh, a, a third uh, option? That they're trying to fashion one that's not reason, one that's not uh, spiritual or God-based or faith-based. There's this soupy kind of Darwinian emotional neuronic neural network they're trying to form. Yeah, well, I no, I I take your point. When you look at social justice warriors, right in practice, there there are some very striking similarities to a religious mindset. So when we say it's a new religion, we're capturing something right important there. So, uh, but I would say that postmodernism is a third option from a traditional kind of religion because a traditional religion is going to say metaphysically, no, there, there really is a reality. You know, when we say that God exists, that's not just a social construct. That's not just a a subjective feel-good assertion that I am making. You know, out there in reality, in another dimension, there is a being who is a God who created the world, right, and so forth. And so that is taken in a literalist sense. Uh, and then the, the, you know, the more moderns or the more secular thinkers want to say, no, reality is the physical world. Maybe we can make an argument for a God or not, but probably not. Uh, and so we we think reality is physicalistic material, right, or or whatever. But what the postmoderns are doing is uh, taking seriously the anti-realism that they do when you push them, say, it is meaningless to talk about the nature of reality, whether you say it's a religious reality or a physical reality. We just have to get rid of the reality talk. And so anytime that we use the word reality, we put it in the scare scare quotes. Or anytime we say there's a fact, we put it in a scare quote. So what we call reality is not out there objectively a god or out there objectively a physical world, but rather it is a subjective creation. It comes from within. We construct our own psychological reality and or if we are ourselves constructed as individuals to be avatars for various or vehicles through which social forces operate, then what we take to be reality is a social construction and I am a vehicle for that social construction. So they are not realist in that, in that sense at all. And also uh, I think on the epistemological side, um, one way of talking about religion is there say there are people who say things like, I know what I want to believe. 
and I'm going to close my mind to the arguments and the facts. And I know that there are uh, good arguments against whatever my religious beliefs are, but I don't want to believe those things. And so as a matter of willing myself, I'm going to not consider those things and double down and redouble my commitment to believing certain things. So that sort of a, 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 a emotion subjective based believing, uh, that's one ac prominent account of what faith is. And so we can say, well, if we look at the social justice warriors uh, and we're trying to reason with them and say, you know, maybe there's another way to reconstruct these facts or, or, or you didn't attend to this and you get the sense that they have their minds made up and they're not open to alternate interpretations. Or as we see in the videos that you've, you've done, they say, you know, we're not here to debate, right? Uh, uh, you know, we're not interested in, in that. And I have, and you know what's going on inside them is they have this very strong soup of emotions that are pointing them in a certain direction. And what animates them is unleashing those emotions and feeling committed to acting out on the basis of those emotions. And so the psychology is, uh, is very much the same. But it's not religious, I think, in any traditional sense, because it's not that I'm making a, a faith commitment to some sort of being that I take to be an objective reality out there, however much subjectively and emotionalistically. It's, it's, a, it's a subjective emotionalist commitment to a, a purely secular social value agenda. But the, there's positive feedback, both within the religious believer when they face the discrepancy between reality and their belief, and the social justice believer when they face the reality between facts and, or the, the, the data and their theory. And that's a being in a community of believers, a community of like-minded individuals. That's what props them up. That It seems like there was a hint of that in Rorty where he was going to, he just needs to create enough people around him, uh, this liberal, you know, secular blob together that, that the reality itself comes, we can disregard reality because we have each other. Maybe that's what causes the, it to, oh, yeah, yeah. to make no, sense. That's, that's very perceptive. And that's, no, that's it. That's exactly right. So there's a you know, concept that comes out of uh, the objectivist literature of uh, social metaphysics that is to say that your your metaphysics is uh, constituted by your social circle and you uh, either let others in your social circle construct what you take to be real uh, and suppress your independent judgment about what reality might be like in order to fit into the group. And you have, you have exactly that sense that if enough people believe it, then we can make it real. Because most of them want to say, you know, you know, they recognize the psychotic break uh, that goes on in some individuals. You know, if I say, I know there's all those facts out there, but if I just believe, if I just really believe on something, then I can make it real. You know, all that strong, wishful thinking. So if you put it in individualistic terms, that seems totally nuts and they recognize that. But if enough people believe it, then there is a, a mass psychology and if I have mm -hmm. trained myself out of exercising independent judgment, then I can genuinely come to believe whatever it is that my, my social group is. Now, there are deep epistemological roots in this, and this is why I think a lot of the philosophy of language that the postmoderns are very well versed in. You know, so if you take seriously and fundamentally the idea 
that language is a social product. And you know, I think fundamentally that's a false understanding of reality or of language. Language has a lots of social elements, but it's not fundamentally a social product. It's an individual's mind in connection with reality. And other people might teach you words and give you theories and, and, and so forth. But ultimately what they're trying to do is guide your mind to grasp the facts as they, as they are. But the, 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 the philosophies of language um, that Rorty and Derrida and to a lesser extent, Foucault and, uh, and, and, and Lyotard are dealing with, they do take deeply the notion that language is a social product and that the individual is born into a social group and you learn a language. And so that is your basic cognitive framework. It's a socially inculcated uh, uh, language, but that that language comes freighted with a certain grammar and a certain semantics and a certain set of interpretive theories about the way the world works. And so you are conditioned to think a certain way. And then that what the implication of that then is, is that people who are in different linguistic communities are then being conditioned into very different ways of understanding the world. And so then you're off to the races and running again and there's no way for us to then bridge the, uh, the linguistic gaps. And then if you combine that with a, a skepticism coming out of epistemology that says, you know, all of the, the elements of language, all of the words that we use, all of those concepts, if you come to believe that there's no way to base them empirically in perceptual evidence or in any sort of uh, uh, sensory data, there's a gap between sensation and perception, perception and conception and so forth, then reality drops out of the picture. So then you don't have individuals coming to grasp reality by their senses and then forming abstractions. What you have is members or unformed members of a group that are born into a linguistic community and they are shaped and formed by that linguistic community. So, yeah. To go back a little bit, you, you brought up the scare quotes that they put around truth and reality and you say, it's meaningless to talk about reality. And I'm wondering what is never scare quoted then once you go down that path, there's got to be something to stand on something that you can't scare quote that, that that's true. Even if it is that scare quote as, as an act of uh, mastering something else or being a part of like, I I'm gain reality by distancing myself from something. Yeah. And again, I think there are variations within postmodernism on how to address that question. So if we take postmodernism and we, and we purify it and we push all of those themes to the end, then it does seem like you end up where you can't say anything without contradicting yourself, without engaging in a kind of performative contradiction. So, you know, even if I put, you know, things in scare quotes, right, uh, then I'm presupposing that the scare quote means something that that symbol has a cognitive referent and that you uh, even though you're a different individual can understand what I mean by that. And so we have a shared reality that we are, we are dealing with. So at, at a very minimum level, if I'm going to speak even to the act of, you know, doing ironic statements and so on, I'm, not able to state without contradiction that all language is subjective and opaque across 
linguistic communities, right, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it's the, uh, to generalize, it's this, the standard paradox of relativism, but I can't say that, you know, all truths are relative or all yeah. claims to knowledge are relative because then I'm including that as a knowledge claim, but I'm trying to exempt it from the relativization. So all knowledge claims are relative is an attempt at a universal claim, not to make a relative claim. Right? Or everything is subjective. Uh, if I want to say that to you, uh, well, I'm trying to communicate an objective truth to you, that it really is the case factually that truths are objective, in which case I can't say that all truths are subjective. Or, um, you know, there is no certainty. Well, that is a, a very strong claim that I'm trying to make certain. So, you know, the usual thing then just is to throw the, the claim back. Well, are you certain of that? And you have to say, well, it's probable that all claims are certain, or well, are you sure of that? And then you just end up babbling, right, ultimately. So, uh, you know, in philosophy, we call this the uh, the Cratylus option for the, the ancient Greek skeptic named Cratylus, who you know, realized the end road that all of these skeptical arguments were reaching. You can't, in fact, say anything. And so, true to his beliefs, he just shut up and stopped saying it. <laughs> I'm sure some people were happy that he went that route. <laughs> yeah, we wish, right, in some cases, right, don't we? <laughs> yeah, please take the Cratylus option. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, if I but think it, if you were then going to go ahead. No, it, it just what is the what's the net? What's the safety net then to keep them from going that far? Because they don't want to shut up. Yes. Well, uh, then I don't know. Then uh, I think we have to say that it comes down to a matter of a personal psychology. If you uh, if you if you want to keep talking, then uh, you know it does seem like you're committed to thinking that there are some values that are to be gained from continuing talking, and uh, it does seem like you're still saying, well, there are other people out there, and I believe that they are real beings. And I believe that language is a real phenomenon. And I believe that language communicates something. And so I'm going to continue to try to use language to, uh, to communicate with other people. Uh, now, of course, they might then back up and, and say, well, uh, you know, this is just a, you know, a personal, happens to press my subjective value judgments. You know, some people might you know, go into a studio and put paint on a canvas. I'm just going into my, my office and putting words on a page, it just makes me feel good. And mm. at least intellectually, that's the best I can say about my, about my project. James Lindsay postulates that with intersectionality, they made the one sacred ground or the one real island to stand on oppression. And that's the one thing that you can't question, or that's the fundamental value. And that's how they, they uh, resurrected the project of postmodernism and, and, Kept it from. Yeah. Well, there is that one. Uh, I think there's. I think there's two. Again, again, there, we have a fork in the road. And the other one would be power. Right? Uh, there are some postmoderns who will argue this is not necessarily a value judgment. They'll say if we understand the way the world works, then 
kind of the ultimate substratum of reality just is power, power manifesting itself in, in various forms. And this is then to take the, the Nietzschean route seriously. So there are no, there are no entities, there, are, there even ultimately aren't individuals, that we are all just vehicles through which power, the will to power is flowing and manifesting. Um, now, if you go that route, then you're still doing a certain amount of metaphysics. And I think Foucault, right on this score, you know, sometimes he's uh, saying that he really is just carrying on the Nietzschean tradition. And so he's not a full-out anti-realist, but rather we will just reduce all of what we think are other realities, material objects, gods, human beings, and so forth, to manifestations of, of power. Now then, to get to the, uh, the others, right? those who want to say that we do have another bottom line, and the problem is that yes, everything is power, but power manifests itself unequally because some of these manifestations or some of these local vehicles have a lot more power than others. And then power being what power is, the stronger power centers oppress and exploit the weaker power centers. Uh, and that's our description of the way the world works. Now, if you're a full on Nietzschean, then you will say, okay, so no problem. That's just the way the world works. And you might as well just embrace the way the world works. Right? Power is a hegemonic dominating right, process. And uh, so in, in some sense, if you have sympathies, your sympathies are going to be with the more powerful manifestations and might makes right. And it just ends up uh, that way. So the analogy I sometimes use is you know, if we step outside of a human framework and we look at say, a predatory species, you know, we, we look at the, you know, the Serengeti and you've got lions and jackals and zebras and antelope and so forth, and they are engaged in a power struggle for uh, survival, and each of those different animals is a different center of power constituted differently, and they are in adversarial relations to each other, and, you know, one thing you can do is say, well, so the lionesses chased the antelope, and they caught the antelope and now they are ripping the antelope apart. So what, how do you evaluate that? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And you say, well, it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just the way the world works, right? It's just, you know, the, today the lions were more powerful than the antelope. And you would say the same thing, you know, the next day the lions are chasing the antelope and the antelope is faster and the antelope gets away. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And you say, well, the same thing. It's just, in that case, speed, that power one and mm. the world just goes on. So we don't apply a normative uh, value. And it's not that we're supposed to be in favor of one side, right, or, or the other. Uh, just power just uh, continues. Now, uh, you can also, though, say, you know, I, you know, when I look at, you know, animals like, I don't know, wildebeests and zebras, you know, they're kind of fine and so forth, but I really prefer lions. There's something majestic about lions and the king of the jungle and they're more powerful so really i'm going to pull for the lions and so i because I, yeah. I you know there's something more noble right about being a predator rather than there is about being a prey and i think nietzsche if you push nietzsche then he's going to be more on that side of the, the equation now to get to the then the james Lindsay uh, equalitarian people i think what you would then say is you have this 
understanding that the universe is ruled by power and there are unequal centers of power and it's all adversarial and struggle. And somehow you find that your sympathies are with those who are on the losing ends of the struggle. So when the lion catches the zebra, you feel for the zebra and the lion is kind of the big bad predator. Uh, and so then when we make the transference to humans, we then say, okay, some humans are stronger than others and humans are beating up on each other's and the whole history of the world is the history of exploitation and oppression. And we feel for those who have been on the losing end of the oppression. Now, where that comes from, that's, a, that's another story. But then that will then be if you take that as your universal value, that a good person feels for the exploited, feels for the oppressed, feels for the meek, then you do have a value framework. And that will then say you can enter the power struggle on behalf of those who have been on the losing end of things. And that's OK. You can use all of the power tools against the exploiter, against the oppressors, because you're on the side of the sheep or you're on the side of the zebras and so on. I think there's three versions of postmodernism. One is to say there are no values. Everything just is power, right? Or everything is, uh, 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 there are no values and there is no reality, even power, right? We just have different narratives and, and some of them power is the narrative and some isn't. And then a third option is to say power is the substrate, but we're on the side of the, the victims of power. Do you think that that same sort of logic or moral valuation is what prompts people to choose reason because they, they see that reason is ultimately, or logic and reason and enlightenment values, those are ultimately the most powerful tool that we have. And so I'm going to put my eggs in that basket rather than the postmodern basket, even if, even if they're equally wrong. Uh, no, right. That, that's, uh, that, that is the camp then that I would be in. So then I would say, okay. uh, but, but I'm putting it in a, uh, in a, in a realist framework. That is to say, when we study the human condition, we study the world. If humans are going to survive and flourish right in the world as it actually is, they have to use the tools that are available to them. And reason is one of those tools. And it is the most important tool that human beings have. And if uh, we can then show that it is efficacious, then that is the one that we should commit to using. So that's the, the old Francis Bacon line about you know, knowledge is power. And so mm -hmm. the, the capacities that enable us to get knowledge, we don't pursue knowledge just as an end in its own sake or because it's kind of fun or whatever, even though it is fun. Ultimately, we want knowledge because knowledge translates into practice and practice makes us better at living our lives. Is there something else that a society needs other than just reason? Then is there like subsidiary uh, aspects to a culture that need to be in place in order for reason to uh, maintain its efficacy? I'm, I'm just, and I'm getting back. It's a loaded question because I'm getting back wondering if the reason that postmodernism came back was because there was no religious structure undergirding or, or in conjunction with a, a reason structure. So it has to revert back into a number of people can't reason their way through things. They need to feel their way through things. And without that religious substrate, there's no place for those people to, to find a home and connect with the reasonable people. 
well, maybe I'll ask you to say a little bit more about what you mean by a, a religious substrate. Do you mean a, a shared set of beliefs or a shared set of habits uh, or a shared moral framework? Uh, is that what you mean by a religious one? Yeah, fundamentally, it would be a narrative structure that ties a group of people together, like just a story of who we are. And that story would have pictures and songs and all the things that plug into that story that fill it out and give room for all these different characters to exist together in a cohesive whole. I just don't know if reason alone can sustain a, a society in all its different aspects. Okay, so if I'm understanding your your your, your second elaboration on right on that point, the key concepts in there were stories and narratives, and there the contrast is to say that reason is very abstract, and stories and narratives are concretizations. So we don't talk about human nature; we talk about Shakespeare, and we talk about Chaucer, and we talk about Canterbury Tales, and so forth. And in that, we're bringing reason down to earth in a way that's understandable to more people. Is that where we're going? So it's not just an abstracted theoretical understanding of the world, right, and so on. Oh, no, I, no, I think that's right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I would say as human beings, uh, at least my understanding of reason, what I mean by reason is not uh, a something that is only a set of highly abstract propositions at a very theoretical level. My view of reason is that reason operates at all levels of abstraction, including its connections to one's perceptual understanding of the world. So I have a, an empirical understanding of reason, not a purely abstracted or what's sometimes called a more rationalistic or a purified reason understanding of the world. Um, so yes, and, and I do think that uh, stories and narratives uh, are absolutely crucial for even the most you know intelligent, abstractly powerful individuals, because we all, and this is part of the knowledge is power thesis, I think that comes out of Bacon, we all do need to understand the world in principle, in terms of generalities, in terms of uh, abstract uh, uh, causal systems that are operating out there. But we also need to be able to translate that to the practical day-to-day -day events in our lives. And that's a, that's a huge project. Um, so you know, if, you, if we take one virtue, for example, I mean, we can say courage is important and you and I can abstractly define courage and distinguish it from brashness and timidity and so on. And we can have, you know, beautifully worked out abstract taxonomies of the, the virtue and the corresponding vices. But uh, in order to really understand courage, we do need to see examples of it. You know, those need to be concretized. So it's got to be, you know, do you remember, you know, Benjamin or Stephen when you were in second grade and that kid came up to you and tried to steal your lunch money? Right? That particular example. And or to uh, have the bedtime stories where, you know, your, your mom or your dad is reading you a story about made up characters who are doing courageous things and contrasting. So uh, those are the concrete examples. Then we have the artistic narrative representations, but we also need to go up and be able to define and conceptualize it and put it in the context of an overall moral theory. So yeah, my understanding of reason that is robust and it operates all up and down those levels of abstraction.
So uh, to come back then to your question, and uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it started to sound like maybe there was a kind of an intellectual history question there, that maybe space for postmodernism and its skepticism uh, came out of the modern project of reason being too abstracted or too purified, and that it gutted or dispensed with kind of some shared cultural understandings that had been built up in the West over the course of centuries, some of them religious, some of them not necessarily religious. Um, and so you know, we, we, we tried to get too scientific and too rational. I'm, I'm just reconstructing a possible question. Too scientific and too rational too quickly. And we threw out all of the traditions and that left a vacuum where people felt empty uh, and not knowing what to do, and postmodernism rushed in to fill that vacuum. Something like that. Yeah, is that plausible? Do you think that that? Do you agree with that? Do you disagree yeah. With that? Well, I think that's that's the story that conservatives will tell, and that uh, some of the postmoderns also will tell. So, if you think about Nietzsche and his famous phrase that God is dead. You know, he does think that it's a, in one sense, a good thing that God is dead, but he's also uh, recognizing that the, the death of God has happened too fast for most human beings uh, and even sophisticated intellectual human beings who uh, become existentialists, you know, that for them, the death of God and all of the comforting stories and narratives and values that are part of that package uh, you know, if you are raised with them and then suddenly you read a few books and you're 20 years old and it's all wrenched out and your reason is telling you that God is dead and you don't have anything to replace that with, well, then you're in a pretty dark place right, psychologically. So um, so I do think you know, the, the important, the, the truth is that we do need to have values in place as we are living our lives. And it's important that they are healthy values. So, uh, you know, if you too quickly destroy all of your value framework and don't have anything to replace it with, then you will be right, psychologically in a dark place. And culturally, more broadly, if you have a large number of people who are doing the same sort of thing, then you will uh, destroy the institutions. But my view is not a uh, it's not a, a conservative one. Um, uh, I think that uh, you know, as the modern world developed, a lot of uh, you know, non-religious and more modern friendly value stories were being developed. Uh, so there were lots of positive uh, options available to them. And people, when they surveyed their actual lives, they could see the concrete improvements that were going on. Um, so I don't, uh, I don't think as a matter of intellectual history that that's a very good account. Okay. I, I was asked about, because um, I, I was making a statement, I don't know if we can uh, counter postmodernism as I th think of it as being rather destructive of our society without a better story. I think that the ultimately they're telling a story. Everybody's got these different stories. So what what's the, be the best story? And I understand that reason is what's going to evaluate whether or not any given story is good. But somebody asked me, when will we ever let go of our training wheels? as a society? When, when will humankind let go of our training wheels? Meaning, you know, religion. 
uh, broadly construed. But it feels like we're in a eternal September where there's always just younger people or we're always being refreshed with people who don't understand life or who are fools that need to be need that wisdom passed on. And I just see that uh, narrative as the, the structure of passing on knowledge over and over again through time. Right. Yeah. Well, I think uh, you know, one of the narratives is uh, um, historical. And so where I think history education is important. So we do have a very powerful uh, uh, narrative that starts in the Renaissance about taking the individual seriously and that we want to live uh, full lives and that we shouldn't be captives of you know, class, gender, and various other restrictions that have been placed on us, uh, that human beings are, are, are wonderful, and uh, with good education, they can uh, really pursue high dreams and make something of themselves. And that is a powerful narrative that we tell, and we tell it a lot, and it has uh, succeeded very well over the course of the last uh, uh, four centuries. We also have the, uh, the science and technology narrative, and I think that also has been very successful. At some level, people recognize that you know, all of the superstitions and all of the crazy mm-hmm. theories uh, and you know, religion does get a lot of blame here for holding us back on and retarding the progress of science. That's not to say that all religion has to be so antagonistic to, to science, but uh, there's a lot of blame to, uh, to, to go around there. But we do have a positive science and technology story, and we recognize that story. So, you know, the Enlightenment has been an, an awesome achievement. The Renaissance has been an awesome achievement. And we're continuing to make, uh, continuing to make progress. Uh, so I think the fact uh, that we have a great Hollywood movie industry that's now expanding and it's becoming multi-centered but, you know, as much as we like to be cynical and jaded and beat up on, on Hollywood movies, the fact is that we get wonderful narratives from them that we resonate to them. We believe in the love story. We, we do, right? you know, except for a few people, you know, have gone through too many divorces or, or bad breakups, right, and so forth. But that's a, that's a narrative. You know, it is possible for decent people to find real love and a happy ever after. It's not easy, but it is possible. And we believe in that. And we, uh, we love the action stories and you know, the competent, resourceful, smart, you know, James Bond, Jason Bourne, uh, you, you run through it. We love that story and it's good versus evil and the good guy wins. We believe in the triumph of good. So we do have all of these narratives, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the Hollywood movies. I think we still are largely in an Enlightenment culture. And, uh, you know, as you said, it is cyclical. We do have people who long for the the good old pre-modern days and the intellectual framework that supports that. We do have people who are cynical and jaded and just want to burn the place down. Uh, and we have those people in every generation, but we do also have the people who want to make a meaningful life and, uh, and, and we're, we're enabling them to do so. You know, in a broad philosophical sense, uh, for, for those of the, who have studied the Greeks, uh, it is Plato right, versus Aristotle versus the sophists right, all over again in every generation has all three contingents, kind of the otherworldly, 
the disworldly, and then the skeptical relativists. And I think right now, of course, we're in a somewhat cynical, skeptical, relativistic place in intellectual and high culture circles, but we do still have a lot of great resources in the broader enlightenment culture.